Hey, this is Mike from Theology on Mission, and today we have a special treat for you. I sit down with Jonathan Brooks, affectionately known as Pasta J. He is the senior pastor of Canaan Community Church in Inglewood, Chicago. He's a speaker, artist, teacher, and an author who just wrote the book, Church Forsaken, Practicing Presence in Neglected Neighborhoods. We talk about neglected neighborhoods, discipling the people in your church, and what it means to study the context you find yourself in. Pro tip, if you do a podcast, hit the record button because I forgot to do that, and this is our second take. If you enjoy conversations like this, then check us out at seminary.edu and look at our Masters of Arts and Theology on Mission. Thanks for listening. This is Mike Moore, Theology on Mission, uh, with Pastor Jay. Take two. He's being incredibly gracious. We might have just recorded this, uh, and now we're going to go for round two. Um, we're here in West Inglewood, Garfield and Paulina. I'm just laughing because I said this like 30 minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> Garfield Boulevard, one of the many beautiful boulevards in Chicago, and uh, Paul Lina next to Canaan uh, Community Church, uh, where Pastor Jay is uh, the the pastor. And I'm saying pasta, not pastor. First thing I like to ask everybody uh, who is in ministry is this question: What is it that you love about your church? Yes, uh, Canaan. Uh, first and foremost, I love the fact that. Um, <laughs> I don't have to be anything that um, I'm not already. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I pastor a church uh, full of people who I grew up with or helped raise me. And so there's no need for me to fake the funk and be anything that I'm not. Um, They know who I was before and know who I am now. And it really liberates me and frees me to just be a pastor, just to be who I am. Um, Lots of other pastors, I think, have to navigate relationships have to navigate how close they can be to people they have to navigate like just whether they have like an extra standard placed on them as the leader of the church and i'm just free not to have any of that um and i'm thankful for i think i'm also really really thankful for the fact that we are like a true community church and a true community in and of ourselves um look out for one another see each other all week long hang out um but because of that our church in and of itself doesn't see itself separated from the greater community. So while we're a community in and of ourselves, because we're all neighbors, we're also a part of our greater community, which means that anything that's true for us inside that building on a Sunday morning or when we're meeting together in small groups is true of our community. And we believe that for the entire Inglewood neighborhood. If God loves us, God loves Inglewood. If God is with us, God is with Inglewood. And so it, it really, you know, it, it just translates really easily. Let's talk about the book a little bit. Church Forsaken, Practicing Presence in Neglected uh, Neighborhoods. I just finished it this morning. Woke up. Uh, finished the last few chapters. And you draw from some writers that uh, a lot of the people at Missio are familiar with. 
John Perkins, Dr. King, um, Mark Mulder, I think you draw from uh, one of his studies, uh, John Howard Yoder, and I appreciate um, you including some friends, things that people that we both know, uh, Terrence Gadsden, um, Bethany Harris. Mm-hmm. On page two, show Baraka, uh, who writes the foreword, who, who you went to college with, right? Yes, yep, good friend. He writes, uh, like many black folks from neglected communities, John was told success is measured by how far you get from that community. So tell us a little bit about Inglewood and about how you got from the community and then how you came back to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thankful for what show wrote in that forward because he really narrates really, really well um, what most of young people, if not all, coming from neighborhoods that have been neglected traditionally, the way we feel. Because I often narrate that these neighborhoods are looked at as places to escape, never places to invest. Um, literally the success marker is whether or not you get away or get out of the community. And even some of the community organizations, well-meaning churches and community organizations will tell kids, you know, we just got to get you out of here. And so, um, you know, that was, I was no different. Um, my mom taught school for 39 years, almost 40 years in Chicago public schools. And, her mantra was education was going to be my way out or my way up. And she really pushed that on me. Um, so, I, you know, it was my narrative from the very beginning that, you know, um, bigger and better. Upward mobility was the way to go. Um, I tried everything, you know, <laughs> everything from uh, being a basketball star to a famous singer or rapper to anything, right? Anything that was going to get me out of here. Um, I often tell people that you, you – you would understand um, people who have to live alternative lifestyles in order to make their money if you understand the narrative of the neighborhood. Because a drug dealer or someone who's involved in gang activity or any of those things, we all, and me, as a, somebody educated going to college, have the same aspiration and goals. Escape, not invest. And we are going to do it by any means necessary. So it's the same story. It's the same narrative, same underlying thing. Um, just different paths to get there. And so um, with that as your story, you begin to understand why people are just people um, and we stop naming people by their worst decisions. But um, what I did was I ended up going away to school. Um, My mom, the entire time I was in Chicago, um, she bussed me out of my neighborhood to go to elementary school and high school. And so I was often a minority um, in my classes and in my schools. And so I wanted to go to a historically black college. I went all the way to Tuskegee, Alabama to go to Tuskegee University to study architecture. All of that was about getting away from Chicago and never coming back. So architecture, because I wanted to move the economic needle for my family as quick as possible. Um, Alabama, because it was really far. It was a really historic black college. And I thought I could learn a lot while I was there, not only about, not only academically, but about myself and my own self-identity as an African-American um, in this country. And boy, was I right. Tuskegee was the right place. Um, so much history. Uh, of course, the first president of, of Tuskegee was Booker T. Washington. Um, you have George Washington Carver, who did all of his scientific experiments at Tuskegee. Um, Rosa Parks, is that's her home. You have the Tuskegee Airmen and all of their work was done in Tuskegee and even William Dawson who's known as the Dean of Negro uh, Composers because he was one of the first African American composers Um, he was the one who actually got uh, Marian Anderson to sing at Radio City Music Hall so uh, I was walking on history (laughs) 
every day, right? And uh, it affirmed me completely in my um, racial identity and cultural identity. Um, but I also got really connected to my faith while in Alabama and began to understand Christianity in different ways than I did. I had grown up in a black church and um, was able to mix that and get stronger with Jesus and love God, but it was not challenging my narrative of upper mobility. It was still out of the neighborhood by any means necessary. So I wish I could say that I came back to Inglewood because I was like, oh, my neighborhood is such a great place. I just want to go back. That's not what happened. My mom actually had a stroke my senior year of college, and um, I came back to take care of her. I figured coming back to Chicago with an architecture degree, I'd be fine working, but I became quickly disillusioned with architecture. Didn't enjoy it, didn't want to do it. Um, I was living with my mom, and this time I wasn't taking care of her. She was taking care of me because I didn't have a job, and I was trying to figure things out. Um, and so that's where I found myself. I found myself back in Inglewood on the south side of Chicago, living with my mom trying to figure it all out and um to be honest with you i can remember back those are some of my lowest days um because i had built my own identity around this upward mobility and never coming back how did you get pulled back and not pulled back in but how did you get pulled to the church yeah yeah my mom <laughs> <laughs> you know you go into the funk my mom's a true black church mom you're not gonna live around my house all depressed Come on, you going to church? <laughs> so actually, we the church I grew up in, um, Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church. I talk a little bit about it in the book. Um, Canaan came out of Ebenezer, so there was a lot of drama while I was in college. And one of the pastors of Ebenezer started Canaan, so my mom was going to Canaan when I came back to Chicago, and so I just went where she was. And uh, getting connected there, the pastor, you know, saw this young guy. I was hip hop, love Christian hip hop, really into it at the time, and still am. And, uh, yeah, he was like, oh, from the neighborhood, Christian, young guy, really? We want you to work with the youth. And so um, that was really how I got kind of pulled back out of my funk a little bit. I started working with young people at the church, fell in love with working with kids, realized maybe I should teach school, which I told myself I would never do after watching my mom for 40 years. Um, but like a duck to water, I took to teaching. And so I ended up going back and getting a master's degree in education. So that's how things got started. You, you quote Jesus in the book, a prophet is not accepted or welcomed in his hometown. When you started to work with youth, when you started taking leadership roles in the church, did you have some people looking at you like, wait a second, I know, <laughs> I know this guy. Yeah, it was, it was different. Like, I, you know, I tell people all the time, like no one would like explicitly say like, what are you doing? Like, you can't do this. Like Jonathan, you know? Um, but the truth is, you know, when I started here, it was kind of weird that not only I was back in the first place because I hadn't made it, air quotes, you know, um, but also like Jonathan working with the youth. I remember when he was a kid, you know, and um, not only that, you know, when I became the pastor of the church, which is a whole other story, like it just didn't seem like it made any sense. I actually had people leave the church when I became pastor because they were going, there's no way I can see you as my pastor. There's no way I could see you in leadership in that way. Um, not meanly, not you know, angrily, just being honest, which I really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, people don't understand. I remember a young man named Daryl. I actually taught, tell this story in um, um, Dr. Uh, Perkins and Wayne's book, uh, uh, Making Neighborhoods Whole. It's called I'm Here Because You're Here, my little chapter. And a young man named Daryl, who was in our after-school program, he was like, Jay, 
why are you back here? Like, you made it. You rich now is what he said. Like, <laughs> why would you come back to the neighborhood? And, like, just quickly, I just responded, well, Dale, I'm here because you're here, you know? And if you're here, then it's worth it for me to be here, you know? But it was it's that mentality of the kids, of the adults. It's like, what are you doing? And then when I got married and had kids and moved my family here, oh, they said everything short of, you are a terrible father, right? Like, um, but yeah, my mom was like not understanding what I was doing. Like, we worked so hard to get out of here. Why would you move your family back here? So yeah, it took a little while for people to actually begin to understand what God was doing with me. So people, uh, people were confused because you use this word uh, neglected. Because this is a neglected neighborhood, and your word choice throughout the book, and especially in the title, I think is very intentional. But for those um, who maybe don't understand um, Inglewood or why you use that word, why neglected? Why not the hood, the ghetto, rough areas, or bad? You know, that's the bad part of town. Yeah. Um, so you're right. Very, very intentional language. And I wanted to use the word neglected because I think our neighborhoods, neighborhoods like Inglewood and others in Chicago and all over this country, actually, are actually always labeled by the results, like what you see on on like on its surface level. But they're never narrated by the underlying causes or reasons why neighborhoods end up like they are. And so we talk about places being violent or poor or bad, if you want to use that language. And the truth is, um, not only is that an incomplete way of describing them, because you're only talking through one lens, um, but it's also unfair because you don't mark any of the things that led to those markers. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to narrate that these neighborhoods have been intentionally disinvested. Chicago has intentionally disinvested neighborhoods like Inglewood, you know, during the 60s when white flight happened. Um, you saw this neighborhood stripped of many of its economic markers, you know, businesses, schools, uh, even churches took out. That's why I quoted Mark Mulder in his book, Shades of White Flight. He talks about the Reformed Church lift, literally leaving and going to the south suburbs. And so, um, you know, 63rd and Halstead, which is the main artery of our neighborhood, was the second largest commercial district to the Magnificent Mile downtown. Right. But you just leave and, uh, and take all of that with you and then leave the residents that are here to figure out what to do with it and then over police those neighborhoods because they're so bad. Air quotes again. No, they're not bad. They're not the hood. They're not ghetto. They're not violent. They're neglected. They have been stripped of what makes a neighborhood complete. And yet still the people that are here are resiliently living abundant lives. And that is what I want to narrate in this book. Um, that it's not just the society as a whole, not just government, not just um, community organizations and politicians, uh, but the church who has completely neglected our neighborhoods. I, I learned things about Chicago, about Inglewood, um, just by reading your book. And you're a, you're just a curious guy, I think. You're a, you're a student uh, of your neighborhood, uh, understanding the history, uh, understanding what are the markers that have led up to this point? What would you say to pastors or church planners or even missionaries or people who are just living um, in their neighborhood and not doing uh, quote unquote ministry, vocational ministry? Um, how do you learn about your neighborhood? Mm. Yeah. Um, so 
you know, the bottom line is, first and foremost, um, you have to begin to believe that you are a part of. You're not just a passer through. You're not just, um, you know, someone who just happens to be in a certain place. Um, I use Jeremiah 29, 4 to kind of narrate the book, 4 through 7 and then 11, to talk about the exile passage of Israel being kicked out of Jerusalem and sent to Babylon. But one of the first things that it says in that passage is like Jeremiah says, this is from God to the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Like there's a emphasis on I put you there. There's a reason you're there. And I think we have to start with that first and foremost when you're a local pastor or a vocational minister or even if not, that this is my place and I need to own that first and foremost. But um, I'm a proponent of Christian community development. Love it. Um, you'll get that all through the book. That philosophy is the one in which permeates my life. Um, and I love it because it's centered on scripture. It is uh, Bible centric and all Jesus all day. But it's really a, another arm of asset based community development, which says that we begin to understand our neighborhoods, not from its deficits, but from its assets. Those things that are gifts, those things that are valiant and wonderful about a place because that breeds hope. Starting with needs and deficits can breed hopelessness because you can become paralyzed with the amount of problems that you run into. And so my advice to a pastor or to anyone in the neighborhood who wants to do this is to begin with the assets. Go, Just take a walk around your neighborhood and begin to literally write down what businesses you see, restaurants, organizations, other churches and, and religious institutions, what things are already beautiful about your neighborhood, especially if you live in one of these quote unquote neglected neighborhoods where people are often leaving and never coming. Um, but on top of that, I would also say how you show up in them. Um, knowing that there are people who live there and have lived there for a long time, let them become your wisdom. They are the experts. Their lived experience is better than any book you could ever read. Because it gives you a human and connected experience to what's going on around you every single day. Um, I am a student of the neighborhood. I, I have asked and gone to the library and said, I need every book you have that mentions Inglewood, right? I have uh, found books written by um, uh, uh, residents who were doing community work before I ever knew there was a such thing as working in the community. And, uh, and quote some of them in the book. And so it's, it's important that you be intentional about seeking out information about the place you live, how it became, what it what it is, because you you don't want to just narrate your place from a from a surface level of what people think they see. Um, you also have to understand the underlying markers that lead to the creation of a place because it helps you understand its complete narrative. You were describing some of the practices there, and you described them more in the book. I noticed that. Dave Fitch write, uh, wrote a book, Faithful Presence, Seven Practices, Church Forsaken, Practicing Presence, also Seven Practices. So describe to me uh, what it would look like for somebody who is practicing presence that's embodying it. Yes. Good word. Thank you for the word embody. Yes. Um, so that's been my critique of, I think, even like, the models that we see so far of talking about presence presence is becoming kind of a buzzword in Christianity now. Oh, just be present. Don't do a bunch of stuff, you know, be missional, which is fine. All that stuff is correct, but we don't often talk about what it looks like, what practices are necessary 
for presence to actually be done well. And that's what I'm trying to narrate in the book. Um, I'm trying to narrate how we live in these places and how if we want to bring what we think is comfortable or right into a space and try to make that place into what we think it is, we actually cause more harm. It's almost like a co- like a colonizing way of presence. Um, and we don't want to be colonizers. We've had enough trouble with that, right? And so this whole idea of practicing presence for me means, you know, and, and I once again, as I narrate Jeremiah 29, um, you know, Jeremiah's letter tells Israel, while they're in Babylon, this place that they would not choose to go. As a matter of fact, the underlying problem with Babylon is the fact that the, the spirit of God, the presence of God dwells in the temple. And the temple's in Jerusalem, and you're sending us to Babylon, which means God's not going to be there. And so their issue is like, we don't think God's going to be here. And I think my the issue with most people, if they were honest with themselves, even churches, about neglected neighborhoods, is they don't think God's there. Right? They want to, that's why you escape it, to go to some other place where God's blessing. Um, and so what I say is we have to change the way we enter into communities. And I'm really speaking as someone from a neighborhood who will turn to it to say that we have to change the mindset of the people who live in it to see it in its beauty and its brokenness. So this idea of practices, some of the practices I talk about, it says build houses and live in them. Right. Like presence says build a house. Yes. Right. Be present. Be in the neighborhood. Get a house. But living in it says um, get outside of the house and now become a part of the neighborhood. What is already going on there? What are, are things that people enjoy and do? And what's the history of it? And who are the people around you? And it wasn't until I needed my neighbors. I tell a story in the book where I needed my neighbors that I really began to understand that. They changed to what I thought about a community that I grew up in um, and the way I lived in it, right? I, I had built a house, but I had built it as a fortress, as a place to protect me and my family from all of the riffraff outside. Um, and what God helped me to realize was, no, 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 no. I called you to live in this community. And what you'll find out is the more you get invested, the more your welfare will be enlarged and helped. And so um, that's what I've learned, you know, and, and even the second one where it says plant gardens and eat what they produce. Right. There's a practice of not just coming in and being consumers in a neighborhood, but to recognize that we are called to be a part of the fabric of what's created there. You know, my second chapter to, uh, from co-ops to cafes and gardens to grocery stores talks about like how we are directed to be a part of what's created in our neighborhoods. Because when you're in a neglected neighborhood like mine, you start to realize if you have the privilege to drive to go to a restaurant or go to a grocery store, like that's great. But what an injustice it is that you have to leave your neighborhood to go get a good sandwich. Um and so then you're no longer just one to eat what's produced, but you also want to be a part of planting what's there. You talk about not just saving souls, but actually developing co-ops, gardens, coffee shops, grocery stores. What, what does what does that provide for people in the neighborhood other than just a other than a place to have coffee, which that's important because it's a gathering gathering place, but what do co-ops, gardens, coffee shops, grocery stores, what, what do they tell the residents who are living there? Yes, yes. So I think that that directive from Jeremiah there is God's way of reminding Israel while they're in Babylon that, yes, you're my people. You're the people of God. I want you to pray. I want you, you know, loving one another, loving me, all those good things. But I'm 
also want you invested in the holistic nature of what it means to be in my world, right? That I'm not just concerned about saving souls. I'm not just concerned about some otherworldly place when you're done, but you are here and the holistic nature of humanity is what I am restoring. I'm restoring not only souls, I'm restoring bodies, I'm restoring minds, I'm restoring all of the world, even neighborhoods and places through my good news. And so what it does is it wakes people up to realize that God is not like saving some uh, disembodied soul that's going to go to some otherworldly place someday. No, God loves us in our totality and everything that has to do with us, our places, what we consume, um, where we live, you know, our economic status, all of those things are things that God is concerned about and therefore should be things that God's people are concerned about. So what these do is they remind people that God is concerned about the totality of their life. My neighborhood hears that God is just as concerned about the economic issues in the neighborhood as he is about whether or not you have accepted Jesus as your savior. Like all of those things matter equally. And, um, you know, and I even narrate in a book, when you become a part of those type of, of works, you actually need faith. <laughs> you actually are practicing your faith versus just saying you have faith because you're trying to do things that maybe you may have never done before or are difficult to get done. And um, with a partnership in the neighborhood and all that, you can really begin to see God do miracles that you never thought before. How do you disciple people into new narratives? So, so here's a narrative. I live in Bridgeport. So the narrative is that people that look like you don't go to Bridgeport, right? <laughs> a little bit about that. Yeah. In the yeah. And the narratives, the other narrative is that people that look like me don't come to Inglewood. And that communicates to some, that communicates something to people in both neighborhoods. You, you detail that story um, about Oprah taking kids from Inglewood to an affluent high school in Naperville, Nequa Valley High School, and how they um, are floored by the technology there they don't feel like they deserve that how do you take people from a place where they don't think they deserve it um they think that their life is in a box they have a vision for what it means to be human and how do you take them from that and say hey, well let's talk about god's kingdom this is what god wants for you this is uh what flourishing looks like in your life in this neighborhood yeah so um yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm really critical of discipleship models in the church, current discipleship models, because I think they're too programmatic, formulaic, that everybody's trying to end up at the same point, you know, take them down certain uh, laws and rules that they need to learn and then like know how to have a quiet time and then like, uh, you know, learn this systematic theology, learn these words, justification, and then like this. Um, and I just don't see that. In, in scripture, I don't see that in the way Jesus discipled. I see Jesus walking with a ragtag group of guys and ladies. And and later on, they're not like at all what he had hoped they would be. <laughs> you know, when he's getting, you know, when it's time for him to be arrested, like they're gone and lying. And <laughs> it's just not at all, you know. But I believe that's more discipleship. It's walking with people, meeting them where they are, and walking with them on their journey of self-discovery. Discipleship is less about telling people what they should be and walking with people as they become who God has created them to be. And so, um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is empowerment. And I think uh, Bob Lupton does a good job of narrating this in um, one of his books. Um, he was the founder of FCS in Atlanta. And he um, talks about, like, the fact that when a caterpillar is trying to go into a butterfly, 
there's nothing we can do to help that process. Like we can only really hinder it. If we try to stick our finger in there and help it, like it's going to mess it up. So he says the chrysalis process is natural. And so is people's growth and, and, and move towards becoming who God wants them to be. All you could ever do for that process with the caterpillar is maybe protect it, you know, create a, a conducive environment where it can actually do what it's supposed to do. And it will automatically emerge as a beautiful butterfly. But, um, we often try to tell people how to become who God wants them to be. I think our job is just to walk with them, create an environment that keeps them affirmed, empowered, encouraged, and allow them to begin to grow into who God wants them to be. Doesn't mean you don't challenge people. Doesn't mean that you don't walk with people and tell them like, oh, maybe that wasn't a good decision. But what you don't do is tell people who God wants them to be and what God wants them to do. And I believe as you walk with people and help them to say, yes, you're already created in the image of God. You're already given dominion and authority and power, you know, because you're created in that image. God just wants you to walk in it, that that begins to shift people's narrative about themselves, about who they are. Um, but it's a journey because you're dealing with people who have had years of the opposite. And uh, but that's why this is not quick discipleship. This is not take our six week discipleship program and you'll come out on the other end a good Christian. Um, this is lifelong journeys, ups and downs of walking with people as they realize that who they are is who God wants them to be. The book is Church Forsaken, Practicing Presence in Neglected Neighborhoods. And my personal endorsement is this. I've spent the last 10 years kind of living between these two worlds, the Missio Alliance world and the CCDA world. And this book marries those worlds and those concepts and values together better than anything I've read so it was a it was a joy to read it um, and a joy to talk with you the book is being released next week yep November 6th Tuesday November 6th is the official release date if you order it on Amazon it'll be at your house on my birthday <laughs> November 9th um, but also I um, it'll be available at the Christian Community Development Association Conference which is in Chicago November 1st through 3rd next week. Um, and you can pick it up there. That's like a free release. And if you would like to come on November 3rd from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at the Lawndale Skyline Room, 3750 West Ogden, I'm having a book release party. And the book will be available there. Bring your dancing shoes because it's going to be a party, y'all. Yes. Looking forward to that. Pastor Jay, thanks for uh, joining us on Theology on Mission. Thank you, Mike, for having me, man. Appreciate you.